We are in the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 5, but I'd like for you, if you would, to turn to Matthew chapter 32, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 32, different testament. We'll come back to Matthew. <clears throat> Moses was a man who wanted to see God. Characteristic of his life that this man wanted to see and experience God, but that wasn't always the case. I want you to hear that. That wasn't always the case. In Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to sort of take you through some snapshots in the book of Exodus, and we're sort of going to spend a little bit of time this morning in Exodus 32 and 33, and maybe even 34, and then we're going to come back to and sort of finish up in some ways. We're kind of working backwards this morning. Moses, he was born a Hebrew. He's raised in Pharaoh's home. You probably know the story of the little wee ark that's launched in the Nile. He survives that watery ordeal, is drawn out of the Nile. He's raised in Pharaoh's home. He saw the burdens of Israel uh, front row. I mean, he had a front row to the experience of the travail of the Hebrew people in Egypt. And on this particular day, he actually killed an Egyptian that was beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And this resulted in him fleeing from Egypt because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So he flees Egypt. He runs to Midian, now a wanted man. He marries a gal there. And we pick up in chapter 3 where he's tending a flock. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was not burning or was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's a place I want to start this morning. We're going to take a really good look at Moses over the course of the morning, but I want to start at the place where this guy did not want to see God always. At this point, he did not want to see this God. Some events unfolded over the course of these next chapters, and you hopefully are familiar with some of these. I would encourage you to just become familiar with the story of the Exodus. If you haven't, it is a central story to our Bibles. Moses, it says, or the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. He says to this Moses, who's turned his face away and does not want to see the Lord at this point. He says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God says to Moses, Moses asks, well, who am I going to say that sent me? He says, you tell him, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you. So Moses has this charge, he has this experience, this burning bush, but at this point he does not want to see this God. 
Some events begin to unfold. First off, he's given some powerful signs. You might be familiar with some of these powerful signs. The first is the, the staff that he had in his hand. God said, throw it down. He turns it into a snake. He says, grab it by the tail. He picks it up by the tail and turns back into a staff. Pretty nifty trick. He also gives him the trick of the leper's hand. Put your hand in your cloak and you pull it out and it's leprous. And you put it back in your cloak and pull it back out and it's gone. It's cleared. Some cool little nifty tricks to show Pharaoh that, hey, there's something powerful going on here. Fast forward a few chapters, Moses then goes to Pharaoh and asking Pharaoh to let the people go, and then the plagues ensue. Moses says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's my workforce. They make our bricks, and then the plagues begin. First plague of water being turned to blood in the Nile. Terrible plague. The frogs, the next one is the frogs that are thick as thieves. The next one being the gnats, and then the flies, and then the livestock die, and then the boils the boils were so bad that the magicians could not even stand before Mo Moses because of the boils that they had covering their own bodies. Then there's hail, tremendous hail, and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail. The only land that didn't receive hail was the land of Goshen where the Jews were. The eighth plague is the locusts. Locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Then the ninth plague was darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Okay, so Moses, he at first starting off, you meet, first meet this guy. He's run to Midian. He's fleeing conflict. We've already kind of figured out. I've conspired with some other Enneagram people. We believe he must be an Enneagram 9 running from conflict. He's avoiding conflict. He doesn't want to be the spokesman. He sounds like a 9 and here he begins to see the plagues unfold. God tells him, you're going to go do something I'm asking you to do. You're going to leave my people out of Egypt. He has a front row seat to God's justice and God's judgment in the plagues. The final plague at this point is the, the Passover, which is a front row seat to some terrible, terrible judgment. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. He had a front row seat to profound judgment. The next chapter is the chapter where they, it tells the story of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led the people through uh, the wilderness or to uh, Sinai at this point. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So Moses is collecting these experiences. He didn't want to see God at first, but he's collecting these experiences, these front row seats where he's spectating and seeing, and he's actually participating in the judgment and the justice, and now here the provision in leadership of God. God is caring for this people and leading them like a good shepherd with a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Chapter 14 is that wonderful chapter of the story of the Red Sea where Pharaoh's army is bearing down on the nation of Israel. They've got Pharaoh's army to their back. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got no plan. They're not good swimmers. There's no way across. There's no way out of this situation. And they see a creative God do something they would have never imagined. And God parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground. This is the point, too, in chapter 15 where Moses makes his songwriting debut. 
like this guy that's running from conflict, this guy that doesn't want to be the spokesman, is so overwhelmed at this point at the things that he's seen from the Lord, he's starting to write music and starting to songwrite on the greatness of God. Chapter 16 picks up the bread from heaven, the manna that shows up on the face of the desert floor where Moses gets the chance to see how God provides for people even though they're quarreling, bickering, complaining people. God yet relentlessly provides for them. It's bread from heaven in chapter 16. In chapter 17, there's water from a rock. These things that he would likely have never imagined. And in chapter 20... They're parked, at, at, they're parked at Sinai and camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And God speaks in the presence of all the people, the Ten Commandments. He says, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. These amazing things that Moses is having a chance to see front row experience to the greatness of God. Between chapters 20 and chapter 32, there's not a lot of things that happen. It's just a lot, of, a lot of laws that are given. A lot of details are shared about what is lawful and what's, um, what's right, what, what Moses is supposed to tend to and building tabernacle and things like that. Who's going to build the tabernacle? Chapter 31, Oholiab and Bezalel, these guys that are going to be involved in building the tabernacle. And then in chapter 32, the dreaded chapter, the story of the golden calf. That's where we're going to slow down a little bit. Okay, remember this guy at the very beginning, he didn't want to see God. He's captured up, he's gathered up these events where he's had the chance to see a great God do great things. And here we are in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make for us gods who shall go before us. You know this terrible story. So Aaron makes a golden calf, and he says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These guys are digesting the Passover meal. They've just crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and they've already forgotten who truly delivered them from Egypt. And they're worshiping a golden calf. They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What a heartbreaking experience. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord knows what's going on. Moses has no idea what's going on at this point. He's at the top of Sinai. This Lord that Moses is experiencing says to him, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, These are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Man, it's a terrifying moment. Moses then begins to intercede for the nation of Israel. Pick up in chapter 33 with sort of the Lord's continued thoughts on this. This is where the Lord is at this point, having seen what unfolded. This is after a plague that comes as a result of the golden calf. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Watch these next words. I will send an angel before you. 
You just read right past it and miss the fact that God's now replaced himself with, I'm not going with you anymore. An angel's going to go with you, but I'm still going to let you go. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites. I'll do all the things I was going to do beforehand. All the ites are going to be driven out. Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm still going to provide this ample, beautiful place for you to live. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Man, what a tragic, tragic outcome. If we had to just stop right there, we would just say, man, this story's over. Uh, this people are done for. Uh, they're going to end up in this land, but if they end up in this land without the Lord, who are they really anymore? We pick up in chapter 33, verse 12. Moses intercedes for the nation of Israel yet again. He says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. Now, I know over there in chapter 3, I didn't even want to see you. I was afraid of you, but now I want to know your ways. Let's see what else he says. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to me, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I don't even want to go into the promised land with an angel. I don't want to go in there and run out all the Ittites and the Jebusites and Hivites. I don't want a land flowing with milk and honey if you're not going to be there. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not, if it's not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? That's who we are as a people, your presence with us. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, a gracious and good and unbelievably loving and patient and relentlessly faithful God, says this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So Moses responds to him and says, please show me your glory. I know at first I didn't want to see you. I was afraid of you. I didn't even know that much about you. But now I'm asking you, show me your ways and show me your glory. I've got to see you now, Lord. I was afraid to see you at first, but in getting to know you, I really want to see you. You now. All right, we're going to come back to Moses. Just park him there just for a moment. You can flip over to Matthew 5 or you can just listen to the verse. It's actually a brief verse, and I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and just sort of expose it, and then we're going to come right back to Moses' story. Matthew 5, verse 8 is our sixth beatitude. Jesus is preaching from yet another mountain, God speaking from a mountain, no accident. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is teaching here on the good life. The Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he's telling people, here's how you find human flourishing. Here's how you find wholeness. Here's how you find shalom. Here's how you find completeness. And he's had a surprising list in these previous Beatitudes. But this one this morning is, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Each of these Beatitudes has had something that's involved, a motivator or a promise involved in each Beatitude. The people who are characterized by this, I'm promising this. The best way to interpret this passage is flourishing are the pure in heart because they shall see God. Flourishing are the pure in heart because they shall see God. So the pure in heart flourish because of one motivator. One motivator. They hope and desire to see God. If you hadn't figured out by now, this is why we're camping out on Moses. This guy wanted to see God. Now, this phrase, pure in heart, let me just take about two minutes on this phrase, pure in heart. We're going to come back to Moses. The pure in heart might have a connection to what's developed later on in the book of Matthew about being pure on the outside, but dark and dead inside. You know the story of the whitewashed tomb Pharisee conversation? It might be along those lines of being pure in heart and working from the inside out instead of being whitewashed, shiny, pure on the outside, but yet being dead and dark on the inside. That might be what this is about. But I believe, given the motivator and how this thing unfolds, that he's speaking more about this. The pure in heart meaning being undivided and singular in devotion. Undivided and singular in devotion. Unlike one who wants to serve two masters, the pure in heart are governed by one master and one burden. And here it appears in this case, that burden is to see God. One-track mind. My parents used to blame me or uh, used to accuse me of having a one-track mind when I was growing up. This is a one-track heart. You can't talk about it. You can't think about anything else. This is seeing God. That, apparently, according to this beatitude, are the ones who are truly flourishing, the ones who are, who are governed by one master, one burden, to see God. Now, we're going to come back to Moses. You can flip back over there if you turned away from it. We come back, and I'm going to just reread a couple of verses. I want to reread where we began this morning. Moses, in chapter 3 of Exodus, says, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then fast forward through a bunch of events that I sort of captured up and gathered up to chapter 33, where he says, show me your ways. In verse 13. And then later on in verse 18 he says, show me your glory. So something happened there. We're going to consider that here in a moment. But let's see what unfolds here in these next few minutes. We're going to pick up in chapter 33, excuse me, verse 19. Moses has asked this Lord, this gracious, forgiving Lord who said, okay, I'm going to go with you after all. He says, show me your ways and show me your glory. We pick up in verse 19. So the Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, sorry, Moses, you can't see my face and live. You can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and where my glory passes by, I will press you into the cleft of the rock. This little crevice. I'm going to press you in there so you survive this viewing. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be 
seen. Moses, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to show you what I can. I still have work for you to do. <laughs> I'm not ready to bring you home yet as an offering that's sublimated into my presence in this very moment. I'm going to ruin you a little bit, but I'm going to show you what I can because I want you to survive this. So let's see what happens in chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, okay, here's how this thing's going to go down. I want you to cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first because the first two he dropped. When he heard the sound of the camp celebrating the golden calf, he dropped the first two stones. He says, make a couple of new stones. I will write on the tablets yet again the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets in verse 4 of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up the mountain to Sinai, or up Mount Sinai. As the Lord had commanded him, took his hand in his hand, these two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What a profound moment. The Lord passed before. He's pressed into this little crevice in the rock. The Lord passes before him and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the Lord and worshipped. And I'm just imagining this moment. Moses is pressed into this crevice. He's got a survivable opportunity. I'm going to let you see what you can survive. I'm going to press you into this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And the moment he lets his hand away, he pronounces and proclaims his name. And Moses, you can almost envision this guy out of the cleft in the rock, bowing and worshiping the Lord. Lord, this is awesome. I didn't want to see you then. That burning bush was kind of cool, but I didn't really know you then. But gracious, I want to see you now. Show me your ways and show me your glory. And out of the crevice, he's on his face enjoying our God. Man, I get goosebumps thinking about this moment and thinking about this development. This is a major development in the story of the Exodus, in the story of Moses, that he had a desire to see and experience God. It's so profound, in fact, that the writer of Hebrews... We don't know who it was. In the faith chapter, he said this about Moses. Listen to this. He captured up a few great things having to do with faith in Moses. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Listen to this. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Man, this guy was singular. Talk about a one-track mind, a one-track heart. This guy had no other aim, no other goal. I want to see God. Show me your ways. Show me your glory. Stuff me in a crevice. Whatever you have to do, I want to see you. And this writer says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It was his fuel. 
It was his chief motivator. He was governed by the singular carrot of seeing God. Man, I like I have this I, I feel like I want to change that saying. I don't know where the carrot, like that's the carrot. I don't know where that came from because carrots aren't that awesome to me. It ought to be something like really good. Like some of those muffins that you get in Dallas. I don't even know what the name of that muffins, the bakery that makes those muffins. They're like you want to kill somebody, they're so good. He's motivated by that one muffin to see God. That's it. Man, what is it about Moses that was so curious? I'm, I'm curious. I got I to gotta understand what's up with this guy. According to Jesus, he's the one who's going to be truly flourishing, or one like him. So, man, I, I want to flourish. I want to know what's motivating this guy. I want to know what's driving him. Is he just curious, George? Man, what's going on here? Now, I will say this before we get into what's driving him. What changed between chapter 3 and chapter 33? I will say this. He had good reason to be terrified in chapter 3. He had real good reason to be terrified in chapter 3. The people that saw God in the Old Testament and survived, like they couldn't believe they survived. There's an account where, Ray, uh, where Hagar has an encounter with the Lord. And Hagar afterwards says, I can't believe I just survived seeing God. Jacob, when he wrestled with God, you know that story? Where Jacob is wrestling with the Lord. Afterward, he says, I'm surprised I lived, not because of the wrestling match. I'm surprised I lived because I saw God. Seeing God meant ruination. It meant your complete undoing. Man, you remember when Isaiah saw God? Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among an unclean people. Where is a crack in the floor or a crevice in a rock that I can hide in? Moses had great reason to be afraid over there in chapter 3. Ruination and seeing God go together. In fact, Job had those very words. He said, you know, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I've seen you as he's sitting there covered with boils, ashes, sitting there in absolute and complete loss, ruined. Ruination and seeing the Lord go together. So Moses had great reason to be afraid over there in chapter 30, or excuse me, in chapter 3. Great reason. So what compelled him? I think if I just could, I think the story that we unfolded this morning, I think the story itself has got to be what compelled him. And not just the words and not just the events, but what he saw and what he experienced of the Lord. And think about it from start to finish. He gets these instructions from God. You're going to go back to Egypt and this is what you're going to do. I mean, just back up a little bit. He appears to him in the burning bush. Remember, that's the morning. I don't want to see you. But then he starts to give him some signs. And he gives some, some instructions. And he sees these plagues unfold. And he sees these events unfold. That he has a front row seat to the greatness and the goodness and the might and the grace even of God. He sees the Red Sea part while the armies of Egypt are behind him. He sees things happen that were unthinkable, unimaginable. Because he sees God at work. He sees a pillar of cloud and a pillar, pillar of fire leading them by day and night. A presence of God. He sees a God that is not going to be a chump either and says, I'm not going with y'all. You lead them. You go with them. I'll send an angel. Because he's not a chump. But he sees a God that's also reasonable. 
He says, listen, God, that's what sets us apart is distinct and awesome that you're with us. I don't even want to go if you're not going. He says, okay, I can be reasonable. I'll go with you. I think what changed between chapter 3 and chapter 33 is he saw his mercy. He saw his goodness. He saw his name unfold in all that he did over the stories that we just gathered up. He saw his provision in manna and quail and water from a rock. He saw his long-suffering and patience with a remarkably difficult people. He saw his forgiveness. And he said, okay, I want to see you now. I want to see you now. I was thinking about this week why I couldn't figure out why this message. I had a difficult time. I feel like, how am I going to convey this? And I think what I was struggling with was the thought, do we really even want to see him? Are we going to talk about something that we, none of us can really relate to? Are a lot of us in chapter 3? No, you just sound kind of scary. No thanks, I'd rather not see you. I thought, what, what is, is, is it even really a carrot for us wanting to see him? Is it a chief motivator for us? Is it something that influences our decisions and governs our schedules and our efforts and our money even? As, as seeing him who is, who is invisible. Could we say that? Could that be said about us? And I wouldn't even just think about it. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about the things that populate my empty thoughts. Where I'm just driving. You know, I'm not problem solving at the moment. I'm just driving. I'm just shaving. I only shave right there and down here so I don't look like a wolf. But, I, you know, trim my beard. That, those moments where you're not really problem solving a problem. What fills my head? Is it a desire and an overwhelming burden for that carrot of seeing God? And I had to be really honest. I don't think so. Not most of the time. But that's the one who's truly flourishing. I said, well, man, what made the difference for Moses? Well, he saw and experienced the Lord. He saw God at work and saw some amazing things. So let's go back to what Jesus said. Jesus said that these, these who are governed and guided by the singular carrot of seeing God, these will truly flourish. These will find wholeness. These will find happiness. These people who are focused like this will find blessedness and what the Jews called shalom. Man, I thought I can think of no better preacher, no more fitting preacher than to preach that sermon than Jesus 2,000 years ago from the mount. Because not only is he conveying some information as the preacher, he's actually the subject of what he's preaching. And he's the fulfillment of what he's preaching. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Those who are going to be truly flourishing are those who, with purity of heart, single-mindedly, are seeking him out. There's a mountain full of people doing that very thing that day as they're standing there, listening, hearing God preach to them from the mount. There's a lot going on in this sermon. It's not just some information. He's actually fulfilling what he's talking about. Man, I can't think of a better place for us to go than to consider this Jesus. Do you realize there's a gospel theme of seeing God? Man, it's across the gospels. 
these people or these groups or these circumstances where somebody really wants to see God, God the Son, to be particular. Man, you know the story of Simon, Simeon? We read it here as a church a lot of times around Christmas time, but boy, that travels outside of Christmas. This old fellow that spent his whole life going to the temple every single day. And you know what he went to the temple to see? The Christ child. And the Spirit told him, you're not going to die until you have seen the Christ child. Man, this guy's life was defined by, he must have been truly flourishing, right? This guy must have truly flourished because that's all he wanted was to see God. And y'all know that moment where he shows up at the temple that day and they're bringing baby Jesus in there for that sacrifice. And he sees that baby and he takes him up. He says, my eyes now have seen your salvation. Take me home, Holy Spirit. I'm ready to go home. Man, that guy must have been truly flourishing. There's a theme of people that want to see Jesus. You know the story of a short little fella? A little short little guy? I don't know how tall he was. Too short to see over the crowds? Zacchaeus? Thankfully, there's a sycamore tree nearby in Jericho. I'm good. He's a good climber, apparently. He got his tree climbing brogans on. Scurried up that tree, man, he's peering out Jesus, seeing Jesus. And what's cool about it, Jesus sees him. He says, I'm going to eat at your house tonight because guess what? I've come here to seek and save the lost. Thankfully, we're not just looking for him. He's looking for us. Man, it's a theme in the Gospels. I'll never forget John chapter 12. We're preaching through John, moving through John chapter 12 as as a church where the Greeks seek Jesus. That's the heading. In John chapter 12. You can just write, read on through it like, oh, that's no big deal. Ordinary Philip and Nathaniel, they bring the, G, the these, these Greeks come to Philip and Nathaniel. They're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. So he brings them to Jesus, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, now my hour has come to be lifted up. It's like the straw that broke the camel's back is a couple people seeking Jesus. Man, it's a theme in our, in our Gospels. You know, I was thinking about the most common malady in the Gospels. Think about it for a minute. Leprosy, that comes to mind, right? Now, I haven't counted them. I'd be curious to count. I should have counted before this sermon. It'd be a good little exercise for life groups. But I think the most common malady and the most common healing that I can recall are blind people being healed. Tell me there's not a theme about seeing Thankfully, we have a God that wants to be seen. Isn't that good? Thankfully, we have these stories, one right after another, of people who are blind that want to see Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 8, Mark Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 18, John chapter 9. Who doesn't treasure John 9? Man, it doesn't surprise me. I don't know of a blind person that he didn't heal. And apparently seeing him is really important. And there's something about their inability to see him and the good medicine of opening their eyes to behold him. The first thing that they see out of that cloudy blink is the face of their Lord. Man, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Man, it is a theme. What a satisfying 
experience, I imagine, for him to heal the blind and for their first look to be in his face. Man, people wanted to see Jesus. And the ones who did flourished. Thankfully, God the Son wants to be seen as well. Apparently, he wants us to flourish. That's a good God right there, right? He wants us to flourish. So I've been trying to figure out, is this a chicken or the egg thing? I've been trying to figure this out. Is this the chicken or the egg? And here, I don't know which is which, but I do have a suspicion. Is it the pure and singular in heart want to see God? Is it something that happens at conversion where all of a sudden we've got this pure heart that was a heart of stone that's now heart, turned to a heart of flesh, and just overnight we want to see God, and being it's done, the light switch has been flipped, and we move on? Or is it seeing him with every glimpse? Every glimpse makes us want to see him some more. Is it seeing him makes our hearts pure and undivided every glimpse, every time we have a window into his movement, into his ways. That's the way it unfolded for Moses. That's what unfolded between chapter 3. I don't want to see you. I'm kind of scared of you, no thanks, to show me your ways and show me your glory. Stuff me in whatever cleft you got to stuff me in, but I have got to see you. I'm going to go with the latter. Seeing him with every glimpse makes us want to see him more. Man, he's given us some wonderful looks. He's given us some wonderful glimpses. Matthew. We're about to finish. But I, I take about three minutes to just show you some glimpses. Some compelling glimpses. In Matthew, just so far, some glimpses at the character and beauty of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus. What a boring list, right? Till you peer in, and you see names like Tamar. And you read the story of Tamar, and you go, that's a scandal. It's a scandal that a woman's listed in a genealogy, for that matter. But who the woman is? Oh, Rahab's listed in there too. That the same Rahab that we call Rahab the prostitute. Oh, well, let's see who else. Oh, Ruth. Oh, she's a Moabite. <laughs> Man, that's scandalous. Oh, the wife of Uriah? You mean Bathsheba? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's in there as well. Man, we see some glimpses and some looks into the character and beauty of Christ. And already we see people listed in his genealogy that give us some hope for some messy folk. If there's any messy in the room, we can look at this and go, yes, I love him already. <laughs> He's but a babe at this point. But I love him already. A few verses later, you see kings traveling from foreign lands to come worship him as a baby or a child. Man, I was thinking, he's so awesome, Chuck Norris will come worship him. All right, that's obviously stupid, but I'm making a point there. I mean, you see his character and his beauty, so I got to see more. 
Every glimpse, every look gives me a purer heart. i got to see more. Man, just a few verses later, you see his baptism under the flagpole. Right there under the flagpole near Jerusalem. You hear a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see his temptation in the wilderness. Man, you think about just the beauty of this new Adam that goes into this wilderness for 40 days, eats nothing, drinks nothing, and yet resists the temptation of the devil when the old Adam, with a full belly, with a garden full of trees surrounded him, couldn't go day Man, that's just the first couple of chapters in Matthew. Glory. Then you see him start to step off into a ministry that's away from the flagpole where he goes to places, unlikely places, places where you go like, Hawk Cove? You going to venture off to Galilee? To Nazareth? You mean you're that kind of Lord that's going to go to the least of these? Oh, I like what I'm seeing. Show me some more, please. Then you see him call a motley crew of disciples to follow him, and then you got even more hope, right? Any common folk around here that glad he's calling common folk to follow him? (laughs) Man, I like what I'm seeing here. And then here we see him these last few weeks as he's been standing on a mount preaching a whole new message. Man, he is glorious. Show us some more. Man, I think what this thing is getting at is just this encouragement to you. I hope this is we just, I can leave you with this encouragement. Look on the sun, not only to live, but to flourish. Every time you look, he's going to change you. It's not going to return void. Drink him in. We're about to take the supper. I mean, I'm, I'm meaning metaphorically, literally. Enjoy this Savior. Enjoy, I just, I think about this. Enjoy Simeon as he held the Messiah and said, okay, I'm ready to go now. My eyes have seen your salvation. Climb a sycamore with Zacchaeus, do whatever you got to do. But peer out there and see him in the dust walking up the road to Jericho. Blink with the previously blind in the first look into the face of a great Savior. Press in with the crowds to see this Christ. I thought about this one, man, right? The end of his life or the end of his life before his resurrection. Stand with a centurion as he looks up with his eyes, having watched how Jesus died, and he's looking at his expired body, and he says, surely this man was the son of God. Looks at him will change you. They'll change you. So that's my encouragement. Look on the son and flourish. Let's pray. Lord, you are um, you are so good to us to open the eyes of our hearts to behold this glorious sun. Lord, we marvel that in seeing him, we see you, the unseeable, invisible God. That you have disclosed your character, your grace, your mercy, your love for us in this person and work and stories and events and details of Christ's life.
Lord, I am so, we are just so thankful for this window in. Purify our hearts with every look. Help us flourish as we look to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.